Chapter Thirty Six of the Eustace Diamonds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Millward. The Eustace Diamonds, by Anthony Trollope, Chapter Thirty Six, Lizzie's Guests. True to their words, at the end of October, Mrs. Carbuncle and Miss Roanoke, and Lord George de Bruce Carruthers, and Sir Griffith Tewitt, arrived at Portray Castle. And for a couple of days there was a visitor whom Lizzie was very glad to welcome, but of whose good nature on the occasion Mr. Camperdown thought very ill indeed. This was John Eustace. His sister-in-law wrote to him in very pressing language, and as—so he said to Mr. Camperdown— he did not wish to seem to quarrel with his brother's widow as long as such seeming might be avoided. He accepted the invitation. If there was to be a lawsuit about the diamonds, that must be Mr. Camperdown's affair. Lizzie had never entertained her friends in style before. She had had a few people to dine with her in London, and once or twice had received company on an evening. But in all her London doings there had been the trepidation of fear— to be accounted for by her youth and widowhood. And it was at Portray, her own house at Portray, that it would best become her to exercise hospitality. She had bided her time even there, but now she meant to show her friends that she had got a house of her own. She wrote even to her husband's uncle, the bishop, asking him down to Portray. He could not come, but sent an affectionate answer, and thanked her for thinking of him. Many people she asked who, she felt sure, would not come, and one or two of them accepted her invitation. John Eustace promised to be with her for two days. When Frank had left her, going out of her presence in the manner that has been described, she actually wrote to him, begging him to join her party. This was her note. "'Come to me just for a week,' she said, "'when my people are here, so that I may not seem to be deserted.' "'Sit at the bottom of my table, and be to me as a brother might. "'I shall expect you to do so much for me.' "'To this he replied that he would come during the first week in November. "'And she got a clergyman down from London, "'the Reverend Joseph Emilius, of whom it was said "'that he was born a Jew in Hungary, "'and that his name in his own country had been Malias. "'At the present time he was among the most eloquent of London preachers,' and was reputed by some to have reached such a standard of pulpit oratory as to have no equal within the memory of living hearers. In regard to his reading it was acknowledged that no one since Mrs. Siddons had touched him, but he did not get on very well with any particular bishop, and there was doubt in the minds of some people whether there was or was not any Mrs. Amelius. He had come up quite suddenly within the last season, and had made church-going quite a pleasant occupation to Lizzie Eustace. On the last day of October, Mr. Emilius and Mr. John Eustace came, each alone. Mrs. Carbuncle and Miss Roanoke came over with post-horses from Ayr, as also did Lord George and Sir Griffin about an hour after them. Frank was not yet expected. He had promised to name a day— and had not yet named it. Varaweel, Varaweel, Gowran had said when he was told of what was about to occur, 
and was desired to make preparations necessary in regard to the outside plenishing of the houses. Nigh do it she'll do with her, and what pleases her ain't self. The mire ye pour out, the less ye'll be left in. Mr. Johan coming? I'll be glad to see Mr. Johan. Oh, I, that's, there'll be ites ye nick. And another coo. You want twa either coos. I'll see to the coos. And Andy Gowran, in spite of the intercene warfare which existed between him and his mistress, did see to the hay, and the cows, and the oats, and the extra servants that were wanted inside and outside the house. There was enmity between him and Lady Eustace, and he didn't care who knew it, but he took her wages, and he did her work. Mrs. Carbuncle was a wonderful woman. She was the wife of a man with whom she was very rarely seen, whom nobody knew, who was something in the city, but somebody who never succeeded in making money. And yet she went everywhere. She had at least the reputation of going everywhere, and did go to a great many places. Carbuncle had no money, so it was said, and she had none. She was the daughter of a man who had gone to New York and had failed there. Of her own parentage no more was known. She had a small house in one of the very small Mayfair streets, to which she was wont to invite her friends for five o'clock tea. Other receptions she never attempted. During the London seasons she always kept a carriage, and during the winters she always had hunters. Who paid for them no one knew or cared. Her dress was always perfect, as far as fit and performance went. As to approving Mrs. Carbuncle's manner of dress, that was a question of taste. Audacity may, perhaps, be said to have been the ruling principle of her toilette. Not the audacity of indecency, which, let the satirists say what they may, is not efficacious in England, but audacity in color, audacity in design, and audacity in construction. She would ride in the park in a black and yellow habit, and appear at the opera in white velvet without a speck of color. Though certainly turned thirty, and probably nearer to forty, she would wear her jet-black hair streaming down her back, and when June came would drive about London in a straw hat. But yet it was always admitted that she was well-dressed, and then would arise that question, who paid the bills? Mrs. Carbuncle was certainly a handsome woman. She was full-faced with bold eyes, rather far apart, perfect black eyebrows, a well-formed broad nose, thick lips, and regular teeth. Her chin was round and short, with perhaps a little bearing toward a double chin. But though her face was plump and round, there was a power in it, and a look of command, of which it was perhaps difficult to say in what features was the seat. But in truth the mind will lend a note to every feature, and it was the desire of Mrs. Carbuncle's heart to command. But perhaps the wonder of her face was its complexion. People said before they knew her that, as a matter of course, she had been made beautiful forever. But though that too brilliant color was almost always there, covering the cheeks but never touching the forehead or the neck, it would at certain moments shift, change, and even depart. When she was angry, it would vanish for a moment, and then returned intensified. There was no chemistry on Mrs. Carbuncle's cheek, and yet it was a tint so brilliant and so little transparent as almost to justify a conviction that it could not be genuine. 
there were those who declared that nothing in the way of complexion so beautiful as that of mrs carbuncle's had been seen on the face of any other woman in this age and there were others who called her an exaggerated milkmaid she was tall too and had learned so to walk as though half the world belonged to her her niece miss roanoke was a lady of the same stamp and of similar beauty with those additions and also with those drawbacks which belong to youth she looked as though she were four and twenty but in truth she was no more than eighteen when seen beside her aunt she seemed to be no more than half the elder lady's size and yet her proportions were not insignificant she too was tall and was as one used to command and walked as though she were a young juno her hair was very dark almost black and very plentiful her eyes were large and bright though too bold for a girl so young her nose and mouth were exactly as her aunt's but her chin was somewhat longer so as to divest her face of that plump roundness which perhaps took something from the majesty of mrs carbuncle's appearance miss roanoke's complexion was certainly marvellous no one thought that she had been made beautiful for ever for the colour would go and come and shift and change with every word and every thought but still it was there as deep on her cheeks as on her aunt's though somewhat more transparent and with more delicacy of tint as the bright hues faded away and became merged in the almost marble whiteness of her skin with mrs carbuncle there was no merging and fading the red and white bordered one another on her cheek without any merging as they do on a flag lucinda roanoke was undoubtedly a very handsome woman it probably never occurred to man or woman to say that she was lovely she had sat for her portrait during the last winter and her picture had caused much remark in the exhibition some said that she might be a brinvilliers others a cleopatra and others again a queen of sheba in her eyes as they were limbed there had been nothing certainly of love but they who likened her to the egyptian queen believed that cleopatra's love had always been used simply to assist her ambition they who took the brinvilliers side of the controversy were men so used to softness and flattery from women as to have learned to think that a woman's silent arrogant and hard of approach must be always meditating murder the disciples of the queen of sheba school who formed perhaps the more numerous party were led to their opinion by the majesty of lucinda's demeanour rather than by any clear idea in their own minds of the lady who visited solomon all men however agreed in this that lucinda roanoke was very handsome but that she was not the sort of girl with whom a man could wish to stay away through the distant beech trees at a picnic in truth she was silent grave and if not really haughty subject to all the signs of haughtiness she went everywhere with her aunt and allowed herself to be walked out at dances and to be accosted when on horseback and to be spoken to at parties but she seemed hardly to trouble herself to talk and as for laughing flirting or giggling one might as well expect such levity from a marble minerva during the last winter she had taken to hunting with her aunt and already could ride well to the hounds if assistance were wanted at a gate or in the management of a fence and the servant who attended the two ladies were not near enough to give it 
she would accept it as her due from the man nearest to her, but she rarely did more than bow her thanks, and even by young lords or hard-riding handsome colonels, or squires of undoubted thousands, she could hardly ever be brought to what might be called a proper hunting-field conversation. All of which things were noted, and spoken of, and admired. It must be presumed that Lucinda Roanoke was in want of a husband, and yet no girl seemed to take less pains to get one. A girl ought not to be always busying herself to bring down a man, but a girl ought to give herself some charms. A girl so handsome as Lucinda Roanoke, with pluck enough to ride like a bird, dignity enough for a duchess, and who was undoubtedly clever, ought to put herself in the way of taking such good things as her charms and merits would bring her. But Lucinda Roanoke stood aloof and despised everybody. So it was that Lucinda was spoken of when her name was mentioned, and her name was mentioned a good deal after the opening of the exhibition of pictures. There was some difficulty about her, as to who she was. That she was an American was the received opinion. Her mother, as well as Mrs. Carbuncle, had certainly been in New York. Carbuncle was a London man, but it was supposed that Mr. Roanoke was, or had been, an American. The received opinion was correct. Lucinda had been born in New York, had been educated there till she was sixteen, and then had been taken to Paris for nine months, and from Paris had been brought to London by her aunt. Mrs. Carbuncle always spoke of Lucinda's education as having been thoroughly Parisian. Of her own education and antecedents, Lucinda never spoke at all. "'I'll tell you what it is,' said a young scamp from Eton to his elder sister, when her character and position were once being discussed. "'She's a heroine.' and would shoot a fellow as soon as look at him. In that scamp's family, Lucinda was ever afterwards called the heroine. The manner in which Lord George de Bruce Carruthers had attached himself to these ladies was a mystery, but then Lord George was always mysterious. He was a young man, so considered, about forty-five years of age, who had never done anything in the matter of other people. He hunted a great deal, but he did not fraternize with hunting men, and would appear now in this country and now in that, with an utter disregard of grass, fences, friendship, or foxes. Leicester, Essex, Ayrshire, or the Baron had equal delights for him, and in all counties he was quite at home. He had never owned a fortune, and had never been known to earn a shilling, it was said that early in life he had been apprenticed to an attorney at Aberdeen as George Carruthers. His third cousin, the Marquis of Killiecrankie, had been killed out hunting. The second scion of the noble family had fallen at Balaclava. A third had perished in the Indian mutiny. And a fourth, who did reign for a few months, died suddenly, leaving a large family of daughters. Within three years the four brothers vanished, leaving among them no male heir, and George's elder brother, who was then in a West India regiment, was called home from Dimarara to be Marquis of Killiecrankie. By a usual exercise of the courtesy of the crown, all the brothers were made lords, 
and some twelve years before the date of our story, George Carruthers, who had long since left the attorney's office at Aberdeen, became Lord George de Carruthers. How he lived no one knew. That his brother did much for him was presumed to be impossible, as the property entailed on the Kilcranky title certainly was not large. He sometimes went into the city, and was supposed to know something about shares. Perhaps he played a little, and made a few bets. He generally lived with men of means, or perhaps with one man of means at a time, but they who knew him well declare that he never borrowed a shilling from a friend, and never owed a guinea to a tradesman. He always had horses, but never had a home. When in London he lodged in a single room, and dined at his club. He was a colonel of volunteers, having got up the regiment known as the Longshore Riflemen, the toughest regiment of volunteers in all England, and was reputed to be a bitter radical. He was suspected even of Republican sentiments, and ignorant young men about London hinted that he was the grand centre of the British Finians. He had been invited to stand for the Tower Hamlets, but had told the deputation which waited upon him that he knew a thing worth two of that. Would they guarantee his expenses, and then give him a salary? The deputation doubted its ability to promise so much. "'I more than doubt it,' said Lord George, and then the deputation went away. In person he was long-legged, long-bodied, long-faced man, with rough whiskers and a rough beard on his upper lip, but with a shorn chin. His eyes were very deep set in his head, and his cheeks were hollow and sallow. And yet he looked to be and was a powerful, healthy man. He had large hands which seemed to be all bone, and long arms and a neck which looked to be long, because he so wore his shirt that much of his throat was always bare. It was manifest enough that he liked to have good-looking women about him, and yet nobody presumed it probable that he would marry. For the last two or three years there had been friendship between him and Mrs. Carbuncle, and during the last season he had become almost intimate with our Lizzie. Lizzie thought that perhaps he might be the corsair whom, sooner or later in her life, she must certainly encounter. Sir Griffin Tewitt, who at the present period of his existence was being led about by Lord George, was not exactly an amiable young baronet, nor were his circumstances such as make a man amiable. He was nominally not only the heir to, but actually the possessor of a large property, but he could not touch the principal, and of the income only so much as certain legal curmudgeons would allow him. As Greystock had said, Everybody was at law with him. So successful had been his father in mismanaging and miscontrolling and misappropriating the property. Tewitt Hall had gone to rack and ruin for four years and was now let almost for nothing. He was a fair, frail young man with a bad eye and a weak mouth and a thin hand who was fond of liqueurs and hated to the death any acquaintance who won a five-pound note of him or any tradesman who wished to have his bill paid. But he had this redeeming quality, that having found Lucinda Roanoke to be the handsomest woman he had ever seen, he did desire to make her his wife. 
such were the friends whom lizzie eustace received at portray castle on the first day of her grand hospitality together with john eustace and mr joseph emilius the fashionable preacher from mayfair End of chapter thirty six